Hola, and welcome to the Beauteous Me podcast, a relatable and authentic space for all. Tune in as we share stories of triumph, resiliency, and healing. We do this all while finding its inner beauty. My name is Jamily Whitfield, and the journey begins now. Hi, guys. Welcome back for another episode of the Beauteous Me podcast. So we're going to have another conversation today about domestic violence, but this is really different. If you tuned into one of my episodes, I had a survivor and she shared her experience and her story, but I thought it was really important to have a therapist, um, Dr. Michelle Finneran, who also wrote a book, which we're going to take a deep dive into this. I found the book so helpful for me just as a clinician. When I tell you it was like the soup to nuts book, that's the best way I could describe it. So I'm not going to spoil it. I want to welcome Dr. Michelle for being Thank here. Thank you so much <laughs> for having me. I really appreciate it, Jamie. Thank you. So Dr. Michelle Finneran is a licensed professional counselor located in Florida. She owns and operates her own private counseling practice, VEC and Associates LLC. Dr. Finneran thoroughly enjoys helping others both personally and professionally, as helping others was deeply instilled in her upbringing with her close-knit family. Dr. Finneran was also encouraged to be determined and to make her dreams a reality. Dr. Finneran's mission in writing this book, Surviving Domestic Abuse, Formal and Informal Supports and Services, is to help victims of domestic abuse navigate effectively through the myriad of formal and informal supports and services. Dr. Finneran's passion in writing this book is to provide knowledge, give support, options, and ultimately empower victims of domestic abuse. It is also the intent of this author to leverage victims' perceptions, reflections, and feelings, and to document recommendations for policy, strategy, decision-making for supports, services, providers. Dr. Michelle, thank you so much for being here. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for that beautiful introduction. Thank you. I'm like so geeked out. I was reading the book and I thought I was only going to focus on one chapter and I found myself going back and I'm like, no, this is like so important to talk about. So the first thing is, can you tell me a little bit, I know I described a little bit about your background, but a little bit about what motivated you into this work. Uh, Yes. Um, I, I have not been a survivor of domestic violence. However, you know, when I was working in a local jail in my community for, for about two years, I worked in a unit with incarcerated female, um, incarcerated female women. And it was, it was specifically a unit for domestic violence, anger management and conflict resolution. And they were incarcerated and I was, it was doing group sessions and individual sessions with them. And what I was finding out as I was inter, you know, talking to them and getting to know them that these were actually victims of domestic violence that were incarcerated. And so that kind of blew me away. I didn't, I never thought that a system was, was this flawed. So during that time, I was in my PhD program at Nova Southeastern University. And I was working with my committee and my committee chair. And I came up with some revelation. I did some research to see if there was any type of any other academic kind of information regarding this. And there really hadn't been from this lens. It was always about like the victim's stories, the victim's trauma, um, what perpetrators look like, but never like when when a victim seeks out formal and informal supports, what's helpful and not helpful for people that are in positions to help these victims, um, 
you know, so I took it from that angle and it, as a service provider myself and being a psychotherapist myself, it was just, it was completely, the interviews were completely eye-opening for me to see what was actually helpful and what was not. And some of it in the book seems to be common sense, but it's not really being practiced. It's you not. Know? Yeah. And, and I'll get into like a part that really stood out for me mm-hmm. <laughs> in the book, but Based on this book, um, it was what I found interesting. What it was, it was the victim's voice. Can yes. you share some of those voices that you heard from the victims that you worked with? You know, I what I the 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 way I saw it is I wanted to have a place and a space for these for these survivors. And at the time, they were survivors; they weren't victims, so they were out of the relationship for a year or more. So they were survivors. I wanted a space and a place for them to tell their story. And usually, it was for the was for the first or second time. But I wanted to be an empowerment kind of um, dialogue, interaction, and interview between myself and a researcher at that time researching victims' voices. And what I found was that, you know, the the gratitude and just the appreciation I actually had and the experience I had and the honor I had for inter- being able to interview this po- this population was just it was it was the most intense um interviews that I had. And and also what was also riveting is there was a lot of saturation in terms of the information and the collection of data that I got, meaning that a lot of these victims were saying the same things, but in different modalities. You know, mm-hmm. they were saying pretty much it was kind of like all across the board, they were having difficulties in many of the same areas. Yeah. Can you tell us which story stood out the most for you? Which is a story that you think about um, quite often? In your work, it's it, it 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 seems like you know when I when I ask the the survivor you know you know their perception of domestic violence and how it's like portrayed and there's a part in the book that says like um, portrayed in um, the media or in movies and it's not like it's in the movies and she said there it feels like in quote little slaps of humiliation. Mm. you know, unquote. So it's like, it was, it's not, it it didn't have to be this deadly, uh, although uh, oftentimes it got to that point, deadly, bloodshedding, violent kind of interactions that you see, but it's a slow kind of gradual buildup. And when she said that slaps of like facial slaps of humiliation, I thought that really, that quote that she said, really just stood out to me because it's really not what we see. It's not what is portrayed. And so that misperception was eye-opening for me to hear it from her, you know, um, that, that, that did stand out to me. Um, uh, that, that specific quote and that specific survivor talking about it. Yeah. So in the book, you perfectly broke it down for someone who is unfamiliar with support for DV from seeking help to empowering them and from, you know, just from seeking help and also to empower them. Um, Mm -hmm. Which part of this book was the hardest to write? Um, I want to say 
I tying it into the Stockholm syndrome. Mm. Um, I think that, you know, tying the trauma that victims parallel paralleling the victims with the Stockholm syndrome. I think that was, that took a lot of uh, mental kind of um, correlation to kind of dis- explain and articulate why there, this traumatic bonding is uh, unexplainable for a lot of the providers that don't understand in the question, the common question is why don't you just leave? Yeah. And that Stockholm syndrome is trying to explain to providers in this book that, listen, there's a lot of components to this. It's not just one thing, but this emotional traumatic bonding that keeps the victim or, you know, victim positioned in a place where they know they need to get out of, but emotionally can't. That was that was significant for me. I really wanted to drive that home and parallel the um, the traumatic bonding to the Stockholm syndrome. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit, just for our listeners who don't might not know what traumatic bonding is or Stockholm syndrome is. If you could just quickly define that. Absolutely. So traumatic bonding is a is a bonding that is very very dysfunctional in nature. And the Stockholm syndrome, and the reason why it's called Stockholm syndrome, is because it was kind of it was a hostage and hostie kind of capturing the hosties and um, having them be with their hostage um, captors for days. And what, what was happening was um, the hosties became to build an empathy and rapport and almost endearment for their captors, you know. And so that is that that emotional bonding, you know, just to feel lucky that they're not um, torturing them or, you know, threatening them. They, they had a sense of, I want to say like almost like a compassion mm-hmm. and an empathy for their captors. And that is the traumatic bonding that absolutely happens between perpetrator and victim. A lot of perpetrators feel like they, they're, they're a lot of victims feel that their perpetrators are sick or they need help and they stay with them. And there's a level of identifying, you know, um, with the perpetrator that keeps them, um, bonded in, in that type of traumatic bonding. Yeah. It's and a very, dis- it's, a, it's a very dysfunctional type of bonding. It, it is, it is. And, and just, um, and you briefly describing that even in the book, um, and hearing stories of survivors that people often easily judge, right. And say, well, just mm-hmm. leave them, just leave her, just leave the situation. You can just leave. You have free will. You're an adult. You can do that without understanding that there are ties. There are situations where fear really kicks in. And if yeah. it's fear of lack of resources, fear of not having anyone, fear of t- having your kids taken away or anything, fear of even saying something, because sometimes the system can be screwed up and kids are removed when parents Absolutely. are in a severe situation without helping the the the, ab- the one who's being abused um, yes. get out of that situation. But that's a whole nother conversation with the system. But um, yes, it's it's important for people to be empathetic and understanding that people are going through something, that people are experiencing something. And as a friend, as a support, as whatever system is that you can't just abruptly say, leave, 
If you're going to ask someone and tell someone to leave, then help them with the resources. Make it safe for them. Don't just make it unsafe or walk into their home thinking that you can support them in leaving when in front of the fear in front of their partner, they can be like, well, no, I'm not leaving. No, nothing is going on. And then that person might get beat for you even showing up at the door. So absolutely, your book was so important because it broke so many of those things down and how to really help this situation. But for me as a therapist, what really struck was in page 47, showing the book. (laughs) Um, In page 47, you said something that was really, that really sat with me. And that was, well, two parts in 46 and in 47, but I'll start off with 47. What struck me was the challenging beliefs. And you said victims of domestic abuse viewed that the most effective type of counseling occurred when the therapist challenged the victim in an empathic manner. Therapists who challenged the victim to think about their own distortions were considered significantly effective by the victims. Cindy received individual therapy, but did not think the therapist's techniques were effective. The therapist guided me through exercises versus telling me or helping me. I needed to be more informed rather than do exercises. And then something else that struck was several of the victims switched therapists due to their first therapist being overall too passive, soft-spoken, and not challenging their distortive cognitions or perceptions. Natasha identified that her therapist was helpful because she validated her, but not helpful because she did not give me other perspectives or challenge me. I think that's why this struck out for me is because you you feel trauma and abuse. You want to be sympathetic. You don't want to push the envelope. You don't want to do too much. But to hear from two different victims that they're like, no, I want you to be empathetic, but I want you to challenge me. I want you to tell me, well, why are you thinking that way? Why don't you think that you can survive without this partner? Or why do you feel that your resources will not be secured, et cetera? Why? I thought that struck out for me because I, in the years I've been practicing, I have never heard a therapist even say that that's the approach with DV. Now I I will say, I don't have much experience with domestic violence. I know from education backgrounds, maybe working with a few situations in the system, et cetera, but nothing in this in depth as far as, as a mental health provider. And those two things really struck me. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and hearing the different stories from your victims in describing their therapists? Yeah, I think I absolutely, I think like when a therapist, when a, when a victim actually changes or changes therapist, that's, there's very, the, the, the ratio of them going to a second therapist is very, very slim. So having, realizing that their therapist is really not effective and switching to another therapist is not typical. When a, th- when a client opens up, when a survivor opens up or a victim opens up to a therapist, they're like laying it out and they expect the therapist to utilize empathy and challenging and technique to help them. And when they don't, typically they don't switch to another therapist. They just stop going, you know, so that's one thing. Another thing is a lot of therapists make a very big mistake when working with the DV population, because when working with somebody who is in an abusive relationship, of course you want the victim to stay safe, but sometimes maybe leaving is not, it turns very, can be turned very dangerous. So therapists kind of have 
already their own agenda as to what they want their victim to do when the victim's not ready to do that, mm-hmm. you know? So another thing that is as important that therapists also kind of don't really do as much as they should in working with this population is they don't allow the victim to process their abuse. They don't allow them to describe in detail what they want, what they've been through. And a lot of times victims need to do that. They need to process their abuse. And usually face to face with a therapist, that's usually the first time that they're doing it. Mm-hmm. But therapists sadly just want to get to a safety plan. They don't want to sit in that abuse and to have it be described. They want to go right into how can we get you out of there? How can we get you safe? Which is typical of therapists and understandably so, but it's a very big mistake that therapists make because they, the, the survivor or the victim really needs to process the abuse and the therapists have kind of like their own agenda of becoming solution focused or safe, a safe haven. And sometimes, but many of the times the victims are not ready to make that move. Mm -hmm. You know what I really enjoyed uh, about the book and guys, I really do recommend that you pick it up. I will be putting the link, but I know I described it as being soup to nuts, but if I really get into the context, it's, Number one, it starts off with seeking help. Then it starts off with what your formal supports are, right? Law enforcement, mental health, medical staff, clergy, judicial system. I've never seen someone break down, how do you get the supports with law informants? How do, how do you do? What's the next step? It, it, this manual, I call it a manual. It's a book, but it's a manual. It's literally a manual and really helping victims and survivors. And then it talks about informal supports, like what your family, friends, coworkers can do, even your, your job. But I love how it ends with the empowerment model. The empowerment model, um, stood out for me in that, and I'm looking for the page in where you said, something that was really important. And it says empowerment refers to a process whereby a person who belongs to a stigmatized social category throughout their lives can be assisted to develop and increase skills in the exercise of interpersonal influence and the performance of valued social roles. Can you break that down for us? Yes. I mean, a lot of, a lot of women found when they felt empowered they were able to shift. And a lot of times, uh, many of the times when they utilize some of these supports that they did utilize, it didn't do that. It almost re-victimized them depending on the support or their families. Um, So, you know, when, when, um, and I talked a lot about in the book, self-efficacy and Mm -hmm. what it means to have that as, as a woman, just being a, being a woman and it's in your, in its own, let alone as someone who has survived trauma, um, you know, when a, when a victim gets empowered, that's when they have the kind of drive and the spirit to kind of believe in themselves to know that I, I can do this. Like I am, I have, I have the will, I have the power, I have the actual effective supports around me. And that that's when they actually make a shift. And that's why I ended that 
chapter nine with empowerment theory and model because it really is the go-to piece for victims who have been through uh, uh, years, it could be years of absolute abuse trauma. Yeah, I, I really, I thought it was important that you wrapped it up with that because it's like, okay, you've gone through all of this, but here you are. It's like that that prize at the end, like, here's your reward. You did such a good job. This is how we're supporting you and you can do it. That That's what I took away from it. It's Absolutely. like a chapter, like you got this, you can do it. And I really, really love that and appreciated that. Um, Thank you. Dr. Michelle, who is this book for? Can you tell listeners who this book is for? The, the publisher of the book is a Rutledge Taylor and Francis group. And that is actually a very um, academic publishing company. They're academic. So it's a research book. It's because I, I, I collected the data. I did the interviews. It's a qualitative research book um, where I asked open-ended questions and follow-up questions. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's there. They gear the book toward academia. They gear it toward professors. They deal, they gear it toward, you know, instructors and students. However, there's a, this is a multi-layered book and it mm-hmm. can be used for several different reasons, not only in a co- college setting in a college course for a family violence program or a DV population course, but also for service providers who work with this specific population to change some of the way they do things. And it also gives, there's also, you know, these are survivors, you know, helping victims, yeah. you know, so it's also... You know, survivors, I asked in, in my one of the chapters, what are some recommendations as a survivor that you can give to a victim? So it's really for the DV population, victim or survivor, mm-hmm. the service providers, formal or informal supports that are providing the services for this population and for academia. Yeah. And that's like a three, three-fold kind it, of... That's what really captured my attention was that it wasn't just... Um, it was research-based, which is great. Cause I love research. Actually, my husband was cracking jokes on me this morning. He was like, what are you researching? Now? <laughs> <laughs> like, Can I just lay in bed on my phone and you not think you know me, but anyways, <laughs> um, you know, the information that you provide here, I, I, my takeaway was that it is for everyone. It is for service providers. It is for family members and it is definitely for DV programs um, to share even with their staff to, to help empowering the voice, to help credible messengers. You know, survivors are credible messengers for the victims, which is really important. So I, I, I thought, it was, you know, you, you did a phenomenal job with this. Thank you so much. And really, when I was working in the system, wh- why I was so shocked, I was so shocked at how flawed yes. the system is. <laughs> yeah. Don't and that really... <laughs> That really just blew me away. And that was like, oh, we got to do something about this. Yeah. Something has to be said about this. Yeah, that's a that, that's a whole other podcast within itself on how flawed the system is. Every single system, the court system, yes. you, the judicial, even the so- social services system. Absolutely. You know, Department of Social Services and everything. But um, Dr. Michelle, what are three tools you can give the listeners, whether they are survivors, victims, mental health providers, what are some three tools that you can give them? You know, I, right now with the pandemic happening, there is such a spike in this in, in this kind of kind of abuse happening in homes, 
And what I would would definitely recommend, one of the things that the, the population definitely feels is humiliation and embarrassment. I want to really, one thing that I definitely feel like as a mental health provider and someone who treats clientele with all array of disorders and diagnoses is that, you know, we really need to start destigmatizing mental health. We really start need to destigmatizing and not feeling embarrassed or ashamed when you are in a position like this. And really just to, to really start breaking down that, you know, providing good mental health services has to be a part of your day-to-day norm. It just does. It just does. And, you know, I want to leave victims and survivors feeling that, you know, seeking out the help and breaking down those barriers is so important. And one of the things that really drove home is just their inability to do that because they're ashamed or they're embarrassed about their situation. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Michelle, you left me with an array of resources to give the listeners, which I truly appreciated, um, which I will definitely be adding to the show notes, guys. I'll add a few of the links. I'll definitely add you to Dr. Michelle's link because she can give you more resources, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah. So where can people find you? So I am on, um, you can find me on my website with you Google www.drmichellethinnerin.com with no periods and just my, my full Dr. Michelle Thinnerin name and my website comes up and there's a place where you can actually send me a message and I get it immediately through my email. Um, my phone number's on there too. Um, you know, I, you know, I get calls from clients who want to start therapy. I get calls from, you know, service providers wanting to collab um, with me. Um, so that's one way. Another way is through Instagram. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn and I'm on um, Pinterest. Yeah. Um, so I'm on those forums as well. And I, I think I sent you the contact information. Yeah. <laughs> I got it all guys. I got it all how you can find it. <laughs> you can stalk her right along with me. <laughs> Dr. Michelle, you know that this is the Beautious Me podcast and it focuses on inner beauty. Do you have one quote, one uh, thing that kind of stands out for women feeling empowered or survivors, not women because, but most of the listeners are women um, in finding their inner beauty with this? I think that one of the things that I strive for as a woman myself is just trying to be as authentic and true to yourself as you possibly can. And that may mean like do in, it may come in different ways. Maybe it means like going for a meditative walk. Maybe it means sitting in silence, but really trying that self-discovery journey of finding your true inner authenticity, I think is the biggest gift you can give yourself as a woman, as a human being. I, I think that. Find, finding that is such a beautiful journey and it's a walk with yourself. It's no one else is involved. Yeah. You know, it's a walk and it can be for some women, it's a spiritual walk for some, for some women, it's a walk with the, the nature. It can be any type of walk that you define it to be. That's, that's in your power, but that journey and that discovery is such that is beautiful. 
that is a beautiful discovery. I love it. I love it. Dr. Michelle Finneran, thank you so much for being here on the Beautiest Week oh, Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for thank listening you. to this week's episode. I hope this episode fed your soul. Please be sure to download new episodes. You can also head on over to rate, review, and subscribe. For more updates, find us at www.iambeautiestme.com or on Instagram at iambeautiestme. Don't forget to use the hashtag Beautiest Me Podcast for your feedback.